Dr. Paul Leslie Hour, helping people tell their stories. And now, your host, Paul Leslie. Hey, it's me. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Paul Leslie Hour. Just remember that the show is made possible through listeners and viewers like you. Just go to thepaulleslie.com and click on Support the Show. Thank you to all of you who have contributed. Now let's get into the interview. Let's start with this. I'm outside. This is the University of North Georgia, formerly known as Gainesville State College, formerly known as Gainesville College. This is Dr. John O'Sullivan. First of all, thank you for your time. So who is John O'Sullivan? Oh, goodness. You're starting with the existential impossible question. Sure. (laughs) Who is John O'Sullivan? Depends who you ask, of course. live in Gainesville, north of here, and I'm also married... So I'm a husband, and I also fight with local politicians about red light. But mostly I'm trying to be an educator. What does that mean to you, educator? Somebody who's leading and inviting. And the task of the educator is to meet people where they are and invite out of their depths that which they want to and need to express and help them to fumble and discover their way into a world. What is the biggest reason as to why we need educators? We need educators more than ever right now, I think, because the only path forward for human evolution is with our culture. We are no longer organisms that fit into a Darwinistic sense of slow evolution. We can't trust and don't have time for DNA and genes to find a way to be in this world. We have now made a culture, made a civilization, with sciences and industrialization and poisonous effects, which are so dense and so fast and so dangerous that we're living in a world filled with fundamental existential threats that question whether or not our species will be here in another century. And so we are now called to use education and cultural transformation more quickly than ever to bring ourselves into congruence with what the biosphere says is possible. And so we need educators like we've never needed them before to do work like we've never done before. And uh, we're having an emergency, and we have to have lots of changes very quickly. And if we don't have them, we won't be able to continue being a species on the planet. And most people don't want to hear it. Most people don't have the capacity to imagine what's being said to them. And so we need educators coming out of the social sciences and all other disciplines to get people to realize that we are in a very unique place in history. And we need educators to not only reproduce the civilizations and the cultures that we've had before, which is mostly what educators were charged to do historically. Now we need educators to change everything about the world that we live in, to change everything about the civilizations, their economies, their political structures, their manufacturing motifs. We have to change all that. And so we don't just need educators to reproduce a culture. We need educators to, with tremendous imagination and creativity, change the whole world. You know, so it's an exciting time to be alive, and we hope that education is, and people's ability to learn and change will be up for the tasks which are immediately upon us right now in this generation, whether we like them or not. Why are you John O'Sullivan? 
Why are you an educator? Well, I'm trying to be the best educator I can right now. I suppose why somebody's a fireman if their neighbor's house catches on fire. I mean, we're called to the immediate things in front of us. And I suppose maybe I've stumbled into this. But now that I know what I know, and now that I'm sort of literate in physical and earth and social and political and economic sciences, I see that there's a perfect storm happening right now, and I am trying to be everything I can be to be somebody who can be with young people who come to this institution who want to know what's going on, what's possible, what's mythological, and what their role in the creation of a new world might be, and, and quite frankly, how they might survive. And so, I am an educator. Why am I an educator? Well, it's the work of the day, and I feel called to it, and that the times are, uh, are pressing for good ones, and I hope that we're able to make teams of people now, cross-disciplinary, across what were once isolated, silos of knowledge. I, I hope that I can now be parts of teams that can put different types of information together to help them to be able to both analyze problems and create new solutions. I think it's the most noble work I can think of to try to do. When you're in a classroom here at the University of North Georgia, what is the experience like from your perspective, just on any given day? Well, it's a mixture of tragedy and beautifulness. And the tragedy is that I'm keenly aware already that when I drive onto this State University's campus in the morning, that there's lots of people around here that would like to come here, but they're not coming here because they can't afford to be here. So I'm keenly aware that this place increasingly is a place which is expensive and seen increasingly as a privilege instead of a need or a right. And so that's tragic. The politics in the United States, the schools and education and knowledge, which we should be giving away as quickly as we can, cost money, and we keep people more people out than we let in. You know, it's tragedy number one. I think about that every day when I get here and pull into my faculty parking spot. There's a lot of unfairness about who's here and not here right from the get-go. Then, as the day goes along, and I work with students, I am keenly aware that a lot of those students have lives that don't enable them to be here very effectively, even after they've jumped through all these hoops and either indebted themselves or borrowed some money or had some privilege to be here. So specifically, you know, this is supposed to be a university, but almost all of my students here at this university are working 20, 30, 40, 50, 60 hours a week. So they can't be students. They don't have time to be students. They're flipping burgers, they're bagging groceries, they're pounding nails, they're mopping floors. And all of this is super noble work and human beings need to do this all day long. But a lot of the students here don't really have time and resources to take a few years of their life and be fully imaginative and fully literate and go to school. So it's stress-filled. People who can't really begin to fulfill their, their human potentials or their student potentials or their learning potentials because this is necessarily part-time business for them. And the real business is frequently, you know, taking care of their families and paying bills. And so 
I wish we were more like Germany or a South American country last week announced a similar model where they say higher education is free. Come to the university. No or very low cost of admission. That's what we need to be doing in this country. It's hardly imaginable that students in this country are going to be able to so-called compete in the global marketplace when citizens in other countries are able to go to school full-time and be serious students, and the vast majority of our own students can only go to school full-time, and they exist under horrible economic pressures. And we've got people standing around wondering how much money they can loan these kids so that they can charge them long-term interest and keep them in debt for a decade or two or three or four thereafter. So that's all horrible. So I have students in my class who three and four and five weeks into the class come up to me and they say, Dr. O'Sullivan, I'd love to have read that chapter that you assigned last night, but I don't have any money for the textbook. Mm. And I have students who email me and I believe them because I have reason to believe them. They're like, Dr. O'Sullivan, I would have loved to have heard that lecture I heard about that you gave last Wednesday, but I don't have any money for gas. Or Dr. O'Sullivan, I would have loved to have gone to that program you talked to me about, but I don't have any child care. And so we live in a, supposedly one of the wealthiest countries on the planet, and it is for some, but it's clearly unequal. And the investments that we need to be making in the lives of these kids here at the State University are uh, not being made. So that's hard about this place. The other thing, just having a little historical context about the same issue is the students who go to school at these Georgia institutions right now are paying about 50% of the tuition to run these institutions. And that is because there has never been so little taxpayer support. And I suppose that's because now we're living in a day and an age where people say, well, I don't like government and I don't like taxes. Well, if you don't like government, you don't like taxes. That also means you don't like colleges and you don't like universities and you don't like college students and you're not going to help them go to school, which means they have to pay more of the tuition, which means they're not going to be able to be very good students because they're going to have to work. So we'll all end up with a stressed out, dumbed down society and a bunch of young people that should be creative and civically active being in debt before they even get out of school. So that story I just told about these kids who go to school here, you know, notice is already immediately connected to the larger economic and political environment that we live in and help people think about public education. So that goes on here, and I see that every day. And then I also see, in just recent years, not only has these students' tuition gone up, but all of our classrooms are bigger. And I'm not talking about the size of the rooms. I'm talking about the numbers of the kids we admit to the uh, classes. And that's a long traditional debate, right? I mean... But if we really want to make an investment in young people's lives and help people get ahead, it requires a lot of attention. And so one of the ironies about this institution where I work is we say it's student-centered. That's what the sign on the wall says over at the student center. But at the same time, we're charging these kids more money than ever, and they're getting less attention. Professors all have more students. And so there's an erosion of this most public good. But, you know, enough of the problems... <laughs> The other thing that goes around here is there's a lot of well-informed faculty with exciting, intelligent minds and lives, and they get to spend time with students here reading literature, ancient and modern, 
in thinking about what a better world might be. The faculty here are in love with the ideas that they want to spread, and they want to share that excitement for learning more times than not, by far. There's great connection between the faculty and the students, and, and great things happen here. And students realize parts of their minds and souls that they've never experienced before. They realize they have capacities, critical capacities, to read and write and network and dream up new things. And they hopefully experience camaraderie and friendship with other students. And I think they form lifetime relationships with the faculty here who are committed to being the best educators that they can be. There's a lot of fun. There's a lot of humor. There's a lot of stress because there's a lot of work to do and we're all driven to learn as much as we can in the shortest amount of time possible, largely. But all that said, you know, there's a lot of fun and love and support and excitement here on these colleges and university campuses. We wish more people could come. We wish the classes could be a little smaller. We wish there were several more buildings here filled with people. There's no shortage of young people who live around here that would love to be here and we would love them to be here. We understand the state has made decisions that they evidently don't think it's a good investment to make in the next generation. We work in as inspiring a manner as we can with the students that come, and we uh, have a lot more success than failure, and we're trying to maintain uh, creativity and literacy and a sense of our cultural traditions at the same time as we collectively imagine what we have to do with each other to leave the world a little better than we found it, which is steep work. And everybody needs to pitch in very immediately to be able to make that possibility to happen. What do you think is the most important thing for a teacher to do or to be? I think that probably depends a little bit on what they're personally trying to do. Not all teachers need to be the same people and do the same things. I think at least at American college or university, when a student comes to a campus here to study for two or three or four years, it's nice if they can encounter a lot of different kind of people. And so I don't think one educator and said personality is what everybody needs. What's nice is when a student comes here for two or three or four years and they encounter a bunch of different people. It's nice if they can encounter imaginative, creative people who are still looking for themselves and wandering for their own center of their own literature. Others, some students like structure, some students like creativity, some students need mothers and aunts, some students need uncles and brothers and fathers. You know, all those social family dynamics play out in a community. Ideally, the, the university is a community of people, and there's something for everybody, and not everybody's right for everybody. And so I'd be uh, shy to answer the question too too narrowly. I think a good university is a lot of variety, a lot of people who are current in their fields, a lot of people who have patience and depth and compassion and knowledge and wisdom and a love of learning and a love of students. I think those sort of existential, spiritual, psychological traits, you know, come in many flavors, though. And hopefully, you know, society and the difficult positions of the administrators in such institutions as these know that for the university to be good, it needs to be filled with 
a lot of different kinds of people, and we have to measure success in a lot of different kinds of ways. And we have to agree that we're going to have regular disagreements about what is optimal and that we'll still all keep working together at building the university anyway. All these institutions have people that are masters of a field and have shown a lot of scholarly excellence and independent research in some discipline. And that tells me that they're all probably people who have the capacity to keep being lifelong learners and change their minds very many times, as often as their discipline changes, which increasingly, you know, our disciplines can change quite a lot in every 12 and 18 months. So in order to, to be uh, a successful faculty member, I think you have to have a love of these disciplines and realize that they change a lot every couple years, and we have to keep redesigning our knowledge, and we have to keep making it fit and be relevant in the world, and we have to figure out how to communicate it with the students that come. And the students are all different, and probably students change over time. For example, I think the whole world right now is trying to figure out what technology means, and what Google means, and what Facebook means, and what Skyping means, and what distance learning means. And I think we don't know what any of those things mean yet. I think we're having a grand experiment with new ways of knowing, and new ways of expressing, and new ways of coming together. And I think a lot of that stuff is promised as panaceas to bring us all together and make learning more easy. And I think the judge is still out on that. I think there's actually a lot of evidence that a lot of this easy technology has made our work of being wise, smart people all the more difficult. It's done a lot to make a lot of us very impatient and very shallow and look for a lot of easy, immediate gratification in our answers to things which are probably just as complex as they've ever been. Even though you can Google up a quick answer, doesn't mean that you're, you know, a tenth of the way there to understanding what is behind generating, making, and critiquing that answer. It's nice when the faculties at the middle schools, the high schools, the colleges, and the universities look like the people that come to the school. There should be a lot of women here because a lot of our students are women. There should probably be a lot of Latino and African American and all kinds of other diversity so that when students come here, they recognize themselves in the DNA of the institution. And I think we're still working for, uh, for more diversity. It's a lot of work to try to diversify the, the DNA of the institution, but I think we genuinely know we need to be diverse, and I think we're genuinely working at that. But, you know, diversity isn't just race, sex, gender, sexual orientation, home of origin. It's intellectual diversity, too. And I think these colleges and universities are historically slow at getting modern, staying modern, and being advocates for change. They tend to be more the status quo. That's safer. That's easier. You'll have less critics if you do that. But, you know, we need to be more creative now than ever before. We need to question the status quo. We need to reinvent higher education, and it needs to be more creative, more quick to respond to troubles and problems in the world, and more quick to respond to new discoveries and knowledge and information. No longer is it proper to think that the solutions to a problem are going to be found in this, that, or the other department. 
We increasingly know that to answer the world's problems, you've got to have interdisciplinary teams. A lot of problems, a lot of economic problems, you can't solve with an economist. You've got to have a bi biologist and an educator, and I would say a moralist, and an engineer, and a couple of other people from physical and social sciences. You've got to work in teams. And I think we're slow to figure that out. We're slow to experiment and be bold. People are comfortable being an expert in a field and publishing in a journal. It's much safer. You get to be the expert about something. Is there a book, and not necessarily just an education book, but a book from your life that you've read that has made the biggest influence on you? What is it? Yeah, it's a book I love. There's a lot of books. There's a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot of books. I always joke with students. The most important thing that a good professor can do, it's just like, what can a good doctor do for you? They can listen to your woes very closely, and if it's a good doctor, they recommend the right medicines or the right diet or the right exercise. And that's what a good doctor can do for you, and a good professor can recommend the books that are right for the questions in your life right now. But broadly, even though there's lots of books worthy of credit, I do have one favorite book. And I use it in a couple different classes here. And it's called New World, New Mind. And it's by Ornstein and Ehrlich. And I think the original book was written in 1989. And sometimes you can read the beginning of that book, which is the part I like a lot. You can read the beginning of that book and go, oh, some of these examples from the 80s and the Reagan administration are a little dated. And they are and they aren't. The bigger story of that book and the story about how we got here, and the story about what our brains and minds and civilizations are good for and not very good for, that we as human beings are really wonderful at something. One of the things we're horrible at, which is really the root of so many of our problems, is that human beings are horrible at imagining the future. And they're specifically horrible at imagining what the effects of their own behavior might be if they keep doing it over and over and over again. We are designed with fight or flight mechanism, meaning we notice changes that happen fast. But when changes happen slowly, we don't notice. And when you don't notice that you're in a changing world and that you're the thing making the change and that the change is bad, then, you know, that's the end of a species. Even though we have fantastic intellectual capacities, we don't notice slow changes. So we are not alarmed at the buildup of carbon in the environment. We are not alarmed at the buildup of nuclear weapons all around us. We are not alarmed at the slow demise of the middle class. We are not alarmed at the slow concentrations of wealth with very few people. We're not alarmed at the increasing number of days that are smog days, so don't let your kids go out. We're not alarmed at these things because we're expert at getting used to things, but we're becoming used to and accustomed to things that should be alarming us. So we're like the proverbial story of the big bullfrog that you drop in the hot pot. If you drop the big bullfrog in the hot pot, the boiling water, the story does go, the bullfrog will pop right out. But if you put the bullfrog in the cool pot of water and turn the heat up, he'll get used to the heat. It'll start to feel really good. It'll then become a sauna, and he'll really like that. And then a little while, you'll have frog soup, and the frog will never have jumped out 
Well, I fear that we are the frog, and this is our world, and the heat is coming up, and nobody's alarms are going off. And so the genius of our genes and evolution have, have not prepared us for the world that we're in. Kind of working our way into the future, there's an event coming up. Tell us about this. There's a film festival in the United States called the Wild and Scenic Film Festival. Pretty sure it starts in California. I think the model is it opens a platform for hundreds and hundreds of amateur documentary films. And a lot of them are shorts. You know, they're one or two or three or four or five minutes long. And they're powerful documentaries. And people send in the documentaries. And then the Wild and Scenic Film Festival narrows it down to a couple of hundred. And then different towns all across America adopt the film festival. And then there's groups of people that look at the 200 final films. And then they choose like 20 for their own town that are sort of fitting for whatever that geography and local country or urban environment is. So on Saturday, May the 30th, from 6 to 9 p.m., we're hosting the first annual Wild and Scenic Film Festival in Gainesville, Georgia. And it's a partnership between Bernal University, private university, University of North Georgia, public university, and its Institute for Environmental and Spatial Analysis, and the Chattahoochee Riverkeeper private group that helps us keep our headwaters clean. So it's a group project from these three organizations, which is bringing the Wild and Scenic Film Festival here. And so I would encourage everybody, if you live around here, to go to the Chattahoochee River website and look at the Wild and Scenic Film Festival for 2015. And all the proceeds go to education for youth environmental education. And we will have great fun there. And all the local environmental groups will be there with tables set up so that people can come involved in civically intelligent local projects. And last time I checked, we have a sponsor, which is Sweetwater Brewing House, too. So I think there'll be something to, uh, to wet the whistle there. And we'll all have a uh, fun community. What is the best thing about being John O'Sullivan? Having an appreciation for other people. Other people are beautiful, and other people have so much to teach us. When you look into their eyes and go with their questions, bring you to the most beautiful places in the human scape. And that's what's beautiful, I guess. This is a very, very broad question. My last question. For anyone who hears this in any way, that they hear it or read it. What would you say to them? It was nice meeting you today. I've been thinking about these things that Paul's invited me to think about this hour for a lot of my life. And I think education is extremely important. And I think the next generation is extremely important. And I think environmental issues are a pressing emergency right now. And I would invite everybody to become more aware of these things. I like the maxim which I heard somewhere... You know, young people are only 20% of the population, but they're 100% of the future. And I totally agree with that. So we have got to collectively in this country and around the world do everything we can to get the best information and the best science and the best education to the youngest people because they are all of our collective futures. Thank you for sharing. Thanks for the questions. It's a pleasure. 
Goodbye.